It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who schedule their children's well child exams before the school year ends. <laughs> and get and their the podcast for pediatricians that thank you for doing it. <laughs> right get their sports physicals scheduled for early in the summer and yet still get their kids back in in september for their flu shots Mm, nicely done thank you we love all those things very specific niche for you seriously that's a good uh piece of advice though because holy cow is it get busy just right now just get that school physical done just try to schedule it we most likely your pediatrician probably has time like right now to get your child in (laughs) For their physical and get it over with. But then, yes, you know, this year I've just had, I think, a record number of kind of late flu shot getters. So, hmm. like, I'll see kids, families here in March and whatnot where they want their flu shot. And I'm kind of like, that's great. You're going to get your flu shot. But listen, I know your physical's in March. You can't wait for your physical to get your flu shot. You have to come in in October. Just come on in or get it somewhere. So remember that, people. I will tell you, my pediatrician's office gives flu shots also to parents while they're there. Yeah, that's nice. We don't do that here, but I have actually tried to talk about it and look at protocols for doing so. Just haven't had any movement on it yet. In any case, I'm Karen Ernst, and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa, and also chair of our state immunization coalition, Iowa Immunizes. And um, I'm back. I was on sabbatical, so the podcast went on sabbatical despite my best intentions. We were all Mm -hmm. on sabbatical, but I'm happy to be back from that sabbatical. And as a celebration, I thought that the perfect way to re-kick us off was to have Dorit Rice join us for a discussion about the litigious litigiousness of the litigation of the anti-vaccine movement. Always a pleasure to talk to Dorit. Yeah, she is the best. And uh, so the second half of this interview, we will get to her. I'm wondering, Nathan, if you have an interesting around the web for me. I do. So I don't remember if we talked about this on the podcast or not. And I'm trying to remember when we had our friend Brandy Zedrozny on, I know we talked generally about misinformation, but I think this that was prior to her whole Correct. Tiffany Dover is Dead podcast. So Correct. there was a podcast called Tiffany Dover is Dead about someone that you might have heard of if you follow this topic about a nurse who got the COVID vaccine early on and fainted and is not in fact dead. And everybody knows that she's not dead, but because of a series of kind of situations kind of went dark and didn't respond to social media. And then a whole conspiracy theory came up around her that she had died and that there's a body double and all this stuff. There was a a podcast done by Brandy to go through all the evidence that she is in fact alive and in fact, try to reach out to her. If you listen to that podcast, it was really good and, and did a really interesting job of breaking down certain conspiracy theories and talking to some of the conspiracy theorists, one of whom was from Iowa, and it was really good. And then if you got to the last episode, if you were like me, and I don't think Brandy would feel bad to hear this, I think she felt it herself, didn't in fact 
like conclude with talking to or seeing Tiffany Dover herself. And so it kind of ended on almost like I was feeling like, yeah, man, you know, this podcast, did this just make things worse? Was this a good idea? And now there's a final episode, a final, final episode, like a year later where Tiffany Dover does in fact get interviewed by Brandy is on the podcast. They've released a series of videos and whatnot on social media. There's an NBC news segment and whatnot, all of this content, which I'm sure for the hardcore conspiracy theorists is only going to make them think it's even more of a deep fake because she changed her hair color or whatever, but it's really good to listen to. It really does bring a far more satisfying ending to the podcast. So it's absolutely worth listening to the podcast. Tiffany Dover is dead to get to that ending. You really would have been one of the little kids who would have taken those marshmallows and not been able to delay satisfaction. <laughs> well, if I had known at the time that it was going to be okay, that, that there was going to be the interview, that would have been different. I could delay but when you didn't know it was like hmm this is a rough ending so i thought what was interesting about that interview is that i remember at the time before brandy's podcast came out and all the tiffany dover is dead conspiracy theories were out there i was like man why didn't they have her just like get on camera now they did do like this whole proof of life video which was like her standing there like awkwardly on the stairs with a whole bunch of other nurses holding a sign being like it's today's date and we mm -hmm. stand with tiffany and she was like hi and there was like no audio to it or anything but to have her come on and be like hey people are saying i'm dead i'm not dead i'm right here this is ridiculous this is what anti-vaxxers do this is how misinformation right. works and shame on you and kind of calling them out. But I think what was going on, it sounds like maybe it was the hospital's PR team sort of right. developing the strategy, I'll say. It sounds like they were playing by the old rules, which is don't indulge the crazy people. Yeah. And I mean, you can see kind of the logic as to what they were going for. Like they kind of assumed, I think, that it would in fact just die down after a while. And it didn't. And yeah, like, do you need to totally engage and like every single bizarro conspiracy theorist? No, but could some basic stuff have happened that they avoided doing? Yeah, definitely. And it does, I agree. It sounds like, in fact, she's pretty upfront that it was pretty much entirely the hospital saying, do not be on. So, in fact, she got reprimanded in, in a way for just posting basic social media stuff about her family, like just some trip photos or something months down the line and it was definitely i think as brandy says in the podcast like do we know exactly what to do no was this a really good example of what not to do in this situation yes i don't think there's a playbook that everyone should follow but their instincts were to go left every time they should have gone right mm -hmm. i remember it being really frustrating to watch in real time and just being like i don't even want to step foot in this right right god bless brandy for being like i think i'll make a podcast out of this because i was like <laughs> nope <laughs> no <laughs> you know just because if you I, I felt like if i couldn't get the cooperation of tiffany off the bat that it wouldn't be worthwhile there was yeah. another nurse at the time too like just a, like a week or so later that they did the same thing too and pretty much the same day that they started doing that she went on she's like hi i'm alive and then it ended mm -hmm. 
Sure. Yeah. It seems like just kind of that basic thing would be worth, you know, yeah, you're always going to have some seedier corners of the internet that are going to make up stuff. But as Mm -hmm. far as like the average person thinking whether this is a real thing or not, Mm -hmm. that is what is generating this attention. Like the views are from people wondering if it's true and if it's clearly not true, I think that's going to reduce a lot of that attention. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're in a different era now. So you actually do have to fight back against misinformation. You can't just ignore it. Yep. That's that's the take home lesson. A lot of people are catching up to that. I mean, I think that's been even our, you know, our major institution, CDC, AAP, there's always been kind of a philosophy of we're not going to address these things because we're going to make our recommendations, talk about our recommendations, but not address specifically the misinformation. Mm -hmm. And I think we're, we've been seeing over the past decade plus that that has resulted in some bad outcomes. Well, my around the web dovetails nicely off of that. And that is that last week, I believe, yes, would have been last week, there was sort of an on-the-fly interview between, oh, shoot, I should have looked up the journalist's name, um, a journalist at the BBC and Elon Musk. I don't know the journalist's name. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Sorry, BBC journalist. I apologize. This and is I, new to me too. So you have to. Yeah. So Elon Musk. Well, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to, I'm going to play this for you. Um, well, COVID misinformation. You changed, the COVID, you changed the COVID misinformation. Has rules. BBC changed this COVID misinformation? The BBC does not set the rules on Twitter. So I'm asking you. No, I'm talking about the BBC's misinformation about COVID. I'm, I'm, I'm literally has, asking you about, you change the labels, the COVID misinformation labels. They used to be a policy and then it then disappeared. Why, why do that? Well, COVID is no longer an issue. Does the BBC hold itself at all responsible for misinformation regarding masking and side effects of vaccinations and not reporting on that at all? And what about the fact that the BBC was put under pressure by the British government? to change its editorial policy. Are you aware of that? This is, a, this is not an interview about the BBC. Oh, so. you thought it wasn't? <laughs> and this, I see now why you've done Twitter spaces. I am not a representative of the BBC's editorial policy. I want to make that clear. Let's talk about something else. All right. So... <laughs> okay. That's the guy in charge of Twitter now. You know, it's funny how as big of a name as he is, I don't remember the last time that I've actually seen him talk or heard him talk. <laughs> like I haven't watched a lot of interviews and hmm, he's uh he's not fun to listen to. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's uh he's not great at that. He certainly wasn't prepared for the obvious question that was going to be asked about Twitter changing its policy. I mean, COVID misinformation is obviously important to us, but on all sorts of things, allowing all of the like worst humans back on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I think NVIC is back on Twitter. Larry Cook, remember Larry, is back on oh, Twitter. Oh, I remember Larry Cook, yeah. Yeah, and he's he's making a big splash again. All And for those of you who don't remember Larry Cook, he was the gentleman who raised, you know, wh- like, what was it, $5 million on GoFundMe and then spent it, spent a part of it, didn't spend all of it, who knows where all of it went, spent, you know, $5,000 a drop on ads on Facebook where he would take babies who had recently died, usually of SIDS, claim it was the vaccines, make an ad out of it, and target the ad to communities where, say, 
measles outbreaks were occurring. <laughs> and he got deplatformed from Facebook and Twitter from that, but now he has been welcomed back to Twitter so that he can indulge Elon Musk's conspiracy theories. Yeah, that was an interesting segment of that interview just because it's so common of a response tactic to any time that you have like a discussion with a conspiracy theorist or a, an anti-vaxxer where you know rather than answering any kind of direct question it's a well what about this misinformation that you're promoting what about this you're, i'm like okay <laughs> I know. you're not answering the question and to try to unpack what you're considering misinformation would take like another 30 minutes so i guess and it's supposed to i mean that's the that's the trap of it Whereas misinformation like, am I dead or not? You know, right. that's, but like, is the BBC sharing misinformation? If the reporter, you could see the reporter being like, what do I say to this guy? What are you talking about? Yeah. Do, do I say to him, what information, misinformation are you talking about? And then they get into a back and forth about what is a vaccine injury? What counts as that? Do masks work? You know, and mm -hmm. then all of a sudden they've devolved. And what he really just wants to know is, you know, why did you change the policy? And yeah. Elon Musk doesn't have an answer for that. So he's, you know, he's like, let me just like find a rabbit hole and plunge us both down it. What do you think of that? And I think yeah, the and this is a guy running Twitter. This is just it's not a great place anymore. I, I've really curtailed just down kind of shifted my downshifted my social media just because yeah, it's it seems like I don't even know what's effective or what to do or what matters anymore. It's you know, I know it's privileged to not advocate as much on any platform, but it's also kind of like what do you do in this weird landscape now? What matters? Yeah, I know we've at Voices for Vaccines, we've shifted more toward Instagram and TikTok, believe it or not. Sure. I'm um, really heavily on Instagram because we can do, you know, that graphic heavy sharing and get some people who are there for like cute kid pics and sure. whatnot. But it is it is a tough space. Facebook doesn't want anyone saying anything about vaccines. You say something about vaccines on Facebook and they're like, yeah, no one's going to see that unless you're the CDC because everyone wants to see CDC content. But, you know, Twitter is just a series of echo chambers. Instagram is, you know, somewhat better than both of them. And TikTok, I don't know. Like, I'm making Noah do that. It's brand new to me. I'm the wrong yeah, generation not, by a leap. not going there. <laughs> you know, I'll be one of these, like, bitter enders as far as Twitter, just because that's where I've cultivated friendships and, like, relationships there. So I don't want to lose those connections. There's no way that I'm going to develop those connections as easily on another social media platform at this point. But mm -hmm. it's also just, like I said, just tougher for me to, like, Am I going to go all in and start trying to make content or am I going to kind of be more of a consumer and watch and then interact in, in less serious ways? I think I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to fall down in that regard here in the future. I think the other reason for us to be on Twitter, honestly, is now it's become a more useful place to find misinformation. How mm, sad is yep. that? But yeah. it, it is, you know, if you want to know what people are talking about, and honestly, that this is the at this moment, the number one trending topic right now, um, the most shared URL on Twitter right now uh, on vaccines is an Epoch Times article about this BBC story. I'm not going to link to that awesome. one. I'll link to the BBC. You know, they think that interview was great. They loved <laughs> it. And I just want to head back to that too. You know, I think what the 
one thing the journalist could have done or one thing we could do in that scenario is do sort of like a public facing education about this is how misinformation spreads. You know, I asked you about your policy about misinformation. And then in response, instead of talking about the policy, you wanted to muddy the waters and make it look like everything shared is misinformation. None of it is legitimate. And that we, with our editorial standards, are um, more at fault than you are, that we are a puppet of the state. And that's, you know, not uncoincidentally, but you've labeled BBC and National Public Radio as Mm -hmm. state state funded media. So it's obvious that you're trying to elevate some of these anti-vaccine voices. And that's why you're asking this question right now and avoiding my question. If you had any honesty about it, the answer to my question would be, I want the anti-vaxxers to have a bigger share of the, the Twitter sphere than you have. I think the tricky thing is when you're talking about a live interview like that, first of all, it's always difficult. I I mean, I think even if I know that journalists are well-trained, but it can't be easy to always come up with the right answers that we can come up with, like in retrospect. Mm -hmm. And what you just said there was like a long thing that you can't say in a short interview. But yes, there has to be some basic response to this kind of thing, especially when you know you're going to interview a person who's been spreading misinformation you know that you're not going to get straight answers out of this person so having like that kind of pause and not taking advantage of those moments there has to be a way to be able to prepare for those kinds of moments because they're gonna happen with elon with a number of people like that frequently and sometimes we see really good journalists that are adept at that and they'll Mm -hmm. have those things and you just love to see it when when they're really good at being able to say okay but let's stay on top let's talk about this okay you're implying this but what about this you see that and i'd like to see more of it yeah. And in, in the journalist's defense, it sounds like this interview wasn't scheduled. It was sort of a last minute, okay, sure. you can interview me. So it's yeah. not like he had time to prep at all. So, <laughs> you know, at least he didn't fall down the rabbit hole of what misinformation he, uh, all things considered, yeah. it, was, it was okay. Yep. But hard stuff. Speaking of new ways to spread misinformation, when we come back, we are going to talk to Dorit Rice, law, vaccine law expert, extraordinaire, and all around fantastically. And now we're joined by Dorit Rice. She never lets me call her Dr. Dorit Rice, even though she has a doctorate in law. But Dorit Rice, who is a professor of law at the University of California, San Francisco. Got that right. University of California Law San Francisco, because there is a separate UCSF that's mostly a medical complex, just so you know. Fabulous. That's that's new. And she thought I was going to say it. I saw her face, but I got it right. And she's a a good friend to both me and Nathan. She's a wonderful person and she has the best sock collection. And also I have a pair of her pants. All of these things are true things. We have her here today. I know. It's fascinating. That's a lot. But you don't have a pair of her socks. No. We'll have to take care of that next time. There we go. <laughs> I think I've given her a pair of socks, though. Have I given you a pair of socks? I At think the... you have, yes. Yeah. Of your own socks or no. like gift? New okay. socks. Different, I'm not going to re-gift her my used socks. Because the pants are, you're implying that they 
were her pants, not they just were her pants, gifted pants. Right. Story for another day, I guess. Exactly. It's not a podcast story. It's a you have to like get into the inner sanctum of voices for vaccines and hear this story. We are ever here today not to talk about our fashion choices, but to talk about litigation and anti-vaxxers and sort of the trends in that. So welcome, Dorit. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. And it's always great to see you too. Thank you. Part of the reason I invited you here today, Dorit, was there's an article in Politico last week titled COVID battle lines moving from emergency room to courtroom. And it talks about something I knew was coming up, but I didn't pay a lot of attention to. It says that there was a COVID litigation conference. And I just want to read this little part of this paragraph. The 275 people who registered for the two-day event in late March attorneys, doctors, activists, and like-minded spectators came from 38 states, Canada, and Australia and paid $600 a piece to listen to a long list of panelists who've earned a certain kind of fame or notoriety, depending on who you ask, for fighting the government officials and medical establishment. The group Energy registered somewhere between tent revival and heady optimism of a house-flipping seminar. Not quite peak Trump rally, but amped. And so that's people learning how they can sue more to have more COVID in the world. Like, we're going to go to court and get more COVID out into the world. What do you know about this conference? What can you tell us about it? So I've been following the announcements since uh, anti-vaccine activist Steve Kirsch has put them out. Uh, and I've talked to a number of reporters, some of whom have been there and told me some of what was going on. I did not register to it. I did look at the agenda. A lot of what was going on in the conference is somewhat of old news. So they have panels about handling employers' uh, battles and exemptions. They have panels about challenging vaccine mandate in the courts. Uh, some of it is attempts to um, innovate by targeting more, uh, by, by trying to go on the offense against agencies and against uh, officials. So it's a bit of a mix of old and new. And to some degree, they also are trying to come up with new ways to do the same old things. Some of the panels are really things that we've seen again and again. So there's a panel about exemptions, how to write religious exemption, how to litigate them. That's not new. Um, we've had, there have been hundreds of cases about uh, religious exemptions since the start of the pandemic. And before the pandemic, there were, was extensive litigation around exemptions and religious exemption in the courts around school mandates. But some of it is new and some of it is a little bit imaginary, like the idea of trying to turn vaccinating into a crime. We've always said it's not actually about medical freedom. It's about trying to eliminate vaccines. Yes. This article sort of gives the idea, though, that a lot of this, this lit litigation is new to this anti-vaccine or at least anti-COVID world. Mm -hmm. And you're saying we've seen some of this before. So what is new and what is well-tread ground? Employer mandates. So this, for example, really is not new. Employer mandates have been litigated at least since 2005. In 2005, a hospital in Virginia adopted an influenza employment mandate and was challenging the court by their union. And litigation continued at least since then. I suspect there was before that, but that's the at least 
when we've seen it. Uh, Employment-minded litigation comes in uh, four big varieties. One, and that's the losing one, is saying, employer, you can't require a vaccine mandate because that's a violation of my bodily autonomy. That tends to lose because a workplace safety condition generally is something that an employer can do. And it's not considered to violate one's bodily autonomy. You have a choice. Part of the deal of working in a, a workplace is you go and work and you accept the workplace rules. You can leave the work. So that's a losing claim. Then there are three claims that have a lot more chance. One is a claim by the union that imposing the vaccine mandate without negotiating with them violates the collective bargaining agreement. That sometimes succeeds because it really depends on what the collective bargaining agreement says. Sometimes the management should negotiate with the union before doing that. So that's one area of litigation we see. Another area uh, of litigation that we see a lot is litigation around uh, religious exemptions from a vaccine mandate. This is not just COVID vaccine. Employers can win that litigation as long as they're a little careful in what they do. But employers tend to run into trouble because they sometimes make assumptions on what they can and cannot do that aren't always true. To give one example, there has been a history of employers that think that they can require a letter from a pastor or a church leader, and that's not allowed. It's the individual believer's belief, and you can't condition it on a church leader uh, response. Then the third one is the American with Disabilities Act. And there the claim is the medical exemption claim. And there's been litigation around that in relation to COVID in an attempt to claim that having had COVID before gives rise to a medical exemption. That's intention with the law because having had COVID by itself is not a disability. And the grounds for exemption here are disability. But they're working on strategizing how to get those exemptions. So employer's mandate is one heading. And we've seen a lot of that. Censorship, what they mean by that is deplatforming by social media. They have been litigating that since, at at least for the last two years. There have been a number of cases in the courts suing Twitter, Facebook, and Google for deplatforming. Almost all of them, and I'll get to the exception in a moment, have been struck down. And the reasoning for striking down is that private companies are not subject to constitutional requirements. A private company doesn't owe you First Amendment rights. Government does. The First Amendment protects you against the government, but not against private companies. So Children's Health Defense, ICANN, Informed Consent Action Network, they all sued Google, YouTube, etc., and they all lost. There is a lawsuit going on now that's trying to get around that and that has been allowed to go forward. That's a lawsuit by a number of attorney journal. It's the, the title of the case is Missouri versus Biden, because Missouri is the highest state. And by a number of anti-vaccine activists like Aaron Kiryati, Jay Bhattacharya, and a number of other of them, none of which, by the way, has been deplatformed from Twitter, etc. And they're claiming that they're claiming that there was a conspiracy by government to coerce private media companies to deplatform them. So the law allows government to try and influence companies, but it doesn't allow coercion. In the past, courts have not been very receptive to such lawsuit, but these people filed the lawsuit before a judge that's pretty openly partisan. This judge has ruled in cases that we would see as problematic before. To give one example, this judge also struck down the uh, Head Start mandate, the Biden Head Start mandate. This judge has also initially struck down the Center for Medicaid and Medicare is a rule that required healthcare workers to be vaccinated, something the Supreme Court later overturned. This judge has uh, found that DC, no, I think that's a different judge. Okay, so he's done several things that were not very friendly to vaccines before. He allowed the case to go forward and it's now in discovery. 
he allowed the group to depose Dr. Anthony Fauci and uh, he's allowing, he rejected the motion to dismiss. So like a lot of other litigants, these people, in, uh, the anti-vaccine activists engage in aggressive forum shopping and they found a sympathetic judge that's allowing the case to go forward. So that's censorship. Censorship in this case means fighting deplatforming. Another case that's under this heading that's currently in the court and I don't know if it'll go is a case by Children's Health Defense that's claiming that the Truth in News and Initiative, which is a collaboration of certain news organization and platform, is an antitrust violation because it's a, an attempt for a group boycott. On its face, that should not go forward because group boycott has to be for economic reasons. And the members of that platform, uh, of that collaborative, are very clear that they're acting for social and political reasons. That's expressly outside antitrust laws. But they're bringing the case in front of a very conservative judge, the judge that has decided on the Mifepistron case and that has a history of other cases, uh, of being very sympathetic to conservative views in other cases as well. So we'll have to see where that, whether that goes anywhere. So that's under censorship. The third line of cases that they list in the agenda is education mandates. As we probably know, historically, no court has found that school mandates are unconstitutional, state or federal. Some courts have found other reasons against uh, school mandates, mostly in relation to delegations. So some courts have found that districts can't require vaccines beyond what the state requires. But no court has found them unconstitutional. They have discussed, apparently, strategies to overturn that, which they might be especially tempted to do given the Supreme Court's broadening of protecting religious freedom. They might look to try and force in a religious freedom requirement. I will say that right now the Supreme Court doesn't seem particularly open to doing that for school mandates. In the most recent case, so in 2019, as you know, New York removed its um, religious exemption. That was challenged in the court. It went through the New York courts all the way and they rejected it. People bringing the case appealed to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court refused to hear the case leaving in place uh, the New York's Court of Appeal, the highest court in New York's decision that allowed the repeal to stand. So um, right now, the Supreme Court doesn't seem anxious to take these cases, but we can't count on it. So education mandates, religious freedom is probably where I'd be most worried about it and probably where they're most strategizing. They, if I were them, I'd be looking for a case where the religious aspect combined with a very sympathetic plaintiff. Um, so it sounds like a lot of these are at best uphill battles and some yes. of them are kind of non-stars it sounds like you're it sounds like in some theory, of them they're but, kind of but in theory but but the uphill battles if you fall on a sympathetic judge it's no longer mm -hmm. uphill battle sure if sure but the, the litigation we've seen in the courts during COVID-19 the vast majority of cases against vaccine mandate lost and the only exception is federal vaccine mm -hmm. mandates the courts have been pretty consistent in being hostile to federal vaccine mandate which are new we haven't seen federal vaccine mandate before and the heading there is not so much anti-vaccine rationale although we are seeing that seeping in too but mm -hmm. in that the anti-vaccine agenda joins with the conservative agenda with a political agenda to limit the power of federal agencies mm -hmm. so i certainly don't want to imply that there's that these are things not to worry about, because I think you're right, you know, when we're talking about whether there's a sympathetic judge or whatnot. But when it comes to these kinds of litigation efforts, I'm kind of curious about your take on how much it, do you think their end goal is to actually get the litigation to succeed versus 
the other benefits of going through this as far as, you know, the, the publicity or what other benefits there are if it is kind of a losing battle? So for many of these cases, I think the anti-vaccine activists are going in hoping to win. First of all, remember that being anti-vaccine often come with a somewhat original view of reality. In other words, the information they're getting and the uh, environment they're in leads them to see the world very differently than people outside the anti-vaccine movement. So I think they expect to win a lot of these cases. The other thing is that when it comes to litigation, one of the things you need to keep in mind is that you can actually build a winning strategy over time. To give one example, the NAACP worked for 40 or 50 years to get to Brown versus Board of Education. Litigation changes over time. And even if it's an uphill battle now, many movements would not see it as a waste of time to work uphill to build the body of in, uh, litigation they need, especially if they think that the judge comp- uh, composition is more friendly to them as there is. So I think they do want to win. There is a line of cases they use for uh, propaganda purposes, but these the cases we've so far talked about, they want results in the real world. They want to undermine workplace mandate and they want to undermine school mandates and they want to undermine the platforming. The cases they use more for uh, messaging purposes are their FOIA requests, for example. When they need to get around FOIA requests, they use that a lot and they often completely misrepresent the cases uh, to try and create talking points for this audience and to create an impression that they're doing something and uh, mostly for messaging, but not the cases that are directly challenging mandates or trying to fight the platforming. I think although they're out there to win, doesn't mean they will win, but in the long term, they're out there to win. Can you talk a little bit more about um, the FOIA requests and how Dell Bigtree misuses those? Certainly. So we've seen an uptick in FOIA requests, at least since 2017. They started to uh, use it uh, then, and they've been very consistent in how they're doing it. So here's the general FOIA gambit, how they work. And there are also cases where they file FOIA requests, hoping to get some information they can use against the government, but most of them follow this pattern. They write a request asking the government, for example, give us all your studies about uh, that, that lead you to say that childhood vaccine don't cause autism, and they give a list of vaccine and they ask for it. Now, what's wrong with that request? And the way the request is written is they spell out why they think vaccines do cause autism. What's wrong with that request? What's wrong with that request is that FOIA isn't actually an open query statute. You don't use FOIA usually to ask the government a question and get an answer. FOIA is a, a statute to allow you to obtain records the government already has. If CDC officials are saying vaccines don't cause autism based on literature that's out there, they're not using a record that the government has. They're drawing a conclusion from scientific literature that isn't a government record. So asking them for the government records that show that is you, you're going in knowing that what you're you're not that they are not going to have. So they go in and ask a question like that, or they ask a question like, give us the a clinical trial that were used to uh, approve Tdap in pregnancy. They know there are no such clinical trial. They know the decision was not based on clinical trial. So they ask a question that they know is disingenuous. They wait until the government comes back. And thinking for a moment about how this works in the government, it's not the head of CDC who's going to address this. There's a person whose job is to handle FOIA requests. They're usually pretty low down because they got stuck with this job that the agency doesn't really like. They go online and they do a a number of searches using words. If it's not a government record, they're not going to find it. Then they write a short formulaic letter that basically says, we've run a search and we haven't found 
information that fits your request. What that means is that they run a search and they didn't find a government record that fits this. But what happens next is that the way the anti-vaccine organization presents it is the government has no information showing that vaccines co- don't cause autism. They take the we did a search and there wasn't a government record that came up and they run with that, present it as this is a negative answer. They did it with COVID. They asked the government to show the records that show that an unvaccinated person can infect someone else with COVID. Someone in the CDC went in, did a search, said there's no record that responds to your request because that's not going to be based on a government record. That's going to be based on scientific information that isn't a government record. And they came back and said there's no such record. And... ICANN is saying the government has no evidence that an unvaccinated person can infect someone else with COVID-19. So basically, they repeatedly ask for things that they know they're not likely to get, and then they misrepresent the response as if it was, uh, as if they asked a query and got a negative answer. We don't have evidence. That's dishonest, to be very blunt. It'd be like me filing a FOIA request saying, can you... Give me all the government records that you use to show that unicorns are not real. Excellent example. We don't have those. We don't keep records on whether or not unicorns are real. We don't have that. And then I go, oh, see, they're unicorns real. are real. <laughs> You're clearly saying the unicorns are real. Okay, got it. Exactly. Got it. Thanks, exactly. CDC. Ha! I don't know why I'd ask CDC that. <laughs> the Center for Dungeons and Dragons Control. I'd be CDDC. So do you want to touch at all about how sometimes FOIA requests are just big gambits for harassment? Yes. The other thing anti-vaccine organizations have been doing a lot, and that's somewhat Children's Health Defense and and. ICANN, but less, that's a lot more state organization, is use FOIA requests to, and especially public record act requests at the state level, to um, try and get emails from uh, health officials and immunization officials in, in states and dig through them to, to find the evidence of the conspiracy to harm children or to harm people that they believe exists. So they're basically out fishing. Public Records Act in most states don't care about your motive and allow people to get uh, information of public officials very broadly. So they get these loads of emails and they go through with the conspiracy band trying to see is there anything there that they can use to claim a conspiracy. I think they believe that there's a conspiracy and they read the email through that, but at least some of them are probably also out to uh, intimidate and harm officials and deter them from speaking up for immunizations. You know, I think it's interesting to watch some of those FOIA requests. And one of the things that I note is that um, I really wish that everybody who was involved in public office would think about the fact that their emails can be FOIA'd at any time, because I do think a lot of people are emailing without thought for that. And, you know, even when I email people on the school board, mm-hmm. I think about what's it going to look like if this is put out in public, because that has happened to me before. Like I've gotten FOIA, no, I haven't gotten FOIA'd, but like the school board's gotten FOIA'd. And so my emails are in there or something like that. So I think that's an important lesson for everyone. If you're emailing, well, I mean, if you're emailing period, you should probably always think about what yes. it could look like publicly, but especially if you're emailing anybody in a public office of any kind, keep in mind that that is not private. Even if the other person you're emailing keeps it private, it can be pulled. 
So it's My not really a question. My computer scientist <laughs> says if you're putting it online, as, don't put it online unless you're comfortable with it being front page New York Times news. That's right. good advice. Yeah, that's a, the old Washington Post uh, headline mm-hmm. rule. The other thing I'm wondering about is when we're looking at disingenuous and harassing intent of some of these folks, are they, I don't know, just spitballing here, bringing in lots of money by doing this? So they're, they're certainly bringing in lots of money in the beginning of the pandemic. It's a little hard to parse out if a specific strategy is leading to that. Uh, at least part of their bringing in money might be just because uh, people during a pandemic want someone who gives them a simplified worldview and are looking for it to believe in a grand conspiracy because things have gone wrong and they want someone to blame. So um, they're certainly bringing in a lot more money, but connecting it to any one strategy is tricky. And they're certainly using a lot of that money for litigation. As I mentioned, anti-vaccine litigation has existed for a long time, but if you have more money, you can do it more. Uh, so one of the things we're seeing is a growth in a, in a, a degree rather than kind. Yeah, how Do we much- have an, an idea of where the money's coming from now? I mean, is this other groups that are new now that with the pandemic here that are starting to fund more anti-vaccine activities because it's overlapping with other political issues? Or is it the same old people that we saw prior to the pandemic? Uh, I know you're maybe not necessarily. I'm, yeah, I'm not the best field, person to ask. But about I wondered that. if you had a perception. Yeah, I, I don't know who's bringing it in. I do know that for some of the litigation, one of the things that's working for the anti-vaccine is that they're signing on to or joining litigation that's done by uh, groups that were not anti-vaccine before. So, for example, the Missouri versus Biden is a good example. You have a group of attorney generals who are now bringing the case against uh, the government, trying to claim they coerced uh, Twitter. That didn't happen before, and the courts take Attorney General a lot more seriously than they take Robert F. Kennedy Jr. from Children's Health Defense. Another thing we're seeing is that, for example, in the federal cases and in the religious cases, we're seeing conservative groups uh, that have brought such cases successfully in other contexts. So, for example, the case against OSHA's vaccine mandate, the head plaintiff was NFIB. They've brought cases in the past that were not anti-vaccine, but did push against government action. They are an organization that focuses on pushing back against government action. National Federation of Independent Business. When the anti-vaccine activists can ride the coattails of these kinds of well-established, savvy groups on litigation, they do a lot better. And do you think, like I do, that this has been part of a long game for a long time with the anti-vaccine groups? Because I feel like even though they couldn't have predicted the pandemic itself, those developing allies with groups that are, again, kind of tangentially related to vaccines has been something that we've been seeing for a long time, correct? Yes. And I, I think they, they've, so they've, anti-vaccine activists have looked for allies for a long time and they reached out all over the political map. They were willing to collaborate with whoever. I think increasingly, at least since 2015, we've seen them lean right in their search for allies and we've seen them try to cultivate Tea Party politicians and sometimes successfully. So in Texas, the political action committee is uh, working with politicians that's started with the Tea Party. A lot of anti-vaccine activists are also at least nodding to QAnon and other uh, outright. So we're seeing uh, anti-vaccine activists reaching out to such a group, but I don't think we can say that there's actually an alliance there. So for example, the NFIB brought the case against OSHA because they really want to uh, limit government action. 
they're not serving the anti-vaccine movement there. They're serving their view that gov- that the federal agencies should have very limited power. So the anti-vaccine activist is taking advantage of the fact that there's a movement that wants these goals. And and again, they really are kind of riding their coattail. They're not in the driver's seat when those bigger, more established groups are, are litigating. Doesn't mean that they won't feed those groups' arguments. So one argument that ended up in the OSHA case is the argument that anti-vaccine activists have been making about vaccine mandate that you can't unvaccinate after you get home. That ended up in the Supreme Court case. The Supreme Court cited that. And it's a really problematic argument in two ways. One, there's a lot of other rules that we put in the workplace that do also affect your home life. So for example, if you have a don't drink or don't use drugs, as several workplaces do, pilots have drug tests, et cetera, that certainly affects your life outside the home. And the same for some other conduct rules, tr- sleeping rules for truckers. So one thing is we we already impose workplace rules that affect your outside life because work is such a big part of your life. And the other thing is that as Nathan and Karen probably know better than I do, the vaccine doesn't stay in your body. It's not that the vaccine sits there and goes with you everywhere. The, hopefully the immune response stays with you just as if you get the virus and you clear it, the immune response stays with you. But you can't say that the vaccine actually goes with you on and on and on for years. That just doesn't happen. But the Supreme Court quoted that argument that came from anti-vaccine groups through the conservative group and into a Supreme Court decision. Yeah, it's like when you eat a hamburger, it's not like you like have a hamburger sitting in your belly for the rest of your life. Yes. Like you have all these organs that take care of it. It's the same yes. thing with the vaccine. Like, like your body's set up to be like, oh, this isn't me. Let's yes. figure out what to do with this. Get rid of what we don't need. And as a reminder, most of the vaccine is water. We get water in all the time. In all, hopefully we get water in because we need it, right? Speak for yourself. I'm a breathinarian. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm not. So I'm wondering, you know, with everything that they got together and did and, you know, talked about, I noticed, too, that vaccine injury was one of the uh, agenda items in the conference. But I'm wondering, in the end, what was sort of the net result of the conference? Have we seen anything change since they stopped meeting in Atlanta? Why do they always meet in Atlanta? Do they think like the CDC is going to get confused and accidentally stumble in? I think in part it allows them to go by the CDC and some don't know that it. But another part is probably that Atlanta is a central, relatively central place, an airport hub that's easy to get to and has relatively decent weather. So my bet is, is that it's convenience more than anything else. And they have some people live there who are willing to organize these things. So I think it's convenience there. But some people know that the CDC might have something to do with it. CDC is a little outside Atlanta, as you remember. Uh, but to your uh, question, I don't think this conference is going to make a dramatic difference. I think it might make a difference in giving some people a chance to network with each other. But they could do that in other ways. They could email each other and um, meet on conference calls and so forth. So uh, it, it certainly got more the more attention. It got them several uh, mainstream media stories. So in that sense, it might lead people who are looking for this kind of litigation, uh, another a place, a pl- an easy place to find it. They can look at the names of the people in the news stories and reach out. But I don't think the conference itself is going to make the main difference. They've been working on litigation for several years before the conference. They're going to keep working on it. And they're going to try and come up with new strategies 
all the time. They've done it before. And if they see a moment of opportunity, they'll take it. I don't think the conference is going to make a difference to what they're doing or even how they're doing it in a big way. I think most of the people who are actually doing the litigation already knew what they heard. I also, as long as we're taking this chance to talk about litigation, I feel like we should update the world a little bit about a certain mother who was suing NBC and what happened with her piece of uh, litigation to try mm -hmm. to, what was it? It was... Uh, she was trying to say that she was def libeled, defamed, smeared yes. through the mud. So the case you're talking about has always been a tragedy and it still is. So the case Karen is referring to is the tragic death of Katie Klobuchar's six months old daughter, who from all indications that I can see died from co-sleeping. But her mother, understandably, was looking for a, a less blame-inducing explanation and the medical examiner concluded that the main uh, problem was sleeping in an adult bed. Uh, there's indications the child ended up face down. Uh, the mother vehemently denied that. Uh, in uh, September 2019, an article in, uh, by NBC reporter Brandy Zadrozny, who is an experienced misinformation reporter, set out the story and the evidence for the bed sharing aspect of the, of the death, set out Miss Klob's um, anti-vaccine activism, and Miss Klobs was unhappy and sued for defamation. The case was procedurally flawed from the start in the sense that uh, although Miss Klobs uh, had worked on it for a while before, it was filed on the last day of the statutory period of limitations in Minnesota, so two years after it was published uh, on a Friday, and it was not served. Served means given to the people that you're suing, until three months later, when it was only give, served on NBC, not she was suing NBC and two the two individual reporters, and it only served NBC. So, in a sense, she already gave up her case against the reporters. I have written before, expressing my personal opinion that the defamation claims are weak to start with, but that's not what the case was dismissed. In a couple of months ago, the case was dismissed for procedural reason for uh, not meeting the statute of limitation. Although federal courts use federal rules of procedure, defamation is a state claim. The, uh, it was brought in federal courts because the parties are from different states. But in this case like this, the procedural rules are the state rules. And that means that uh, Ms. Klobes should have followed Minnesota's rules about filing, which means that the, sta the, the date for considering the case filed is the date where you serve the, the defendants. That means that by not serving the defendants on the day she filed, which was the last day she could file, she gave up. She basically missed the deadline for filing. The case was dismissed on that ground, on the ground of missing the deadline. Now, I will say, I, I, I said, I think the case was weak on the merits, but this kind of mistake is the lawyer's fault. It's not Miss Clover's fault. However, a lot of clients are very involved in their case, but knowing the procedural rules is the job of the lawyer they're paying. Whether or not she asked the lawyer about the statute of limitation, it's his job to know what the deadlines are and to make sure she meets them. So this is a case where in other circumstances, she may have had grounds to uh, sue her lawyer for malpractice. In this case, that's going to be a little tricky because she's going to have trouble showing causation uh, if the case was so weak. She's going to have trouble to show that she would have won without this mistake. But maybe it's worth trying to file at least a complaint with the bar because this is a pretty basic mistake. 
is something a lawyer shouldn't do. Absolutely. And just, you know, it's one of those things where we always want, if we think something is not correct in terms of science or um, in terms of the actual law, we want to disprove it that way, not on a, a technicality. Yes. Now, from the defendant's point of view, from NBC's point of view, kicking it out quicker is better for them. It's less expensive from lawyers, etc. So kicking it out procedurally is great for NBC, but it leaves a little, the case a little bit unresolved. Absolutely. Dorit, is there anything that we didn't ask that we should have asked you? So one of the questions is always about the lawyers bringing the anti-vaccine cases. I want to say two things on that. First of all, everybody deserves competent representation. Just like everybody else, we want anti-vaccine activists to have lawyers who know what they're doing so that if they have a valid claim, the claim can be properly aired, properly litigated and heard. That said, at least some of the lawyers bringing these cases appear to be sympathetic to the anti-vaccine views of their clients, which they don't have to be, and willing to collaborate in practices that are at least borderline shady. For example, bringing FOIA requests repeatedly uh, that are not really FOIA requests, that are really statement of anti-vaccine law, and then using the results of the FOIA request to misrepresent the science is shady. I think lawyers representing anti-vaccine activists should not be criticized just for that, but should be openly criticized when they engage in uh, shady practices. And I think that's fair. All right. Last questions just for fun, Dorit. Are you going to be voting for RFK Jr. in the 2024 <laughs> primaries for president? Big no. However, I don't think he's really taking it very seriously. I think if, if he really wanted to be elected, he'd be running as Republican. I think he's running oh, as sure. Democrat because uh, running as Democrat is a way to get more attention. And I think it's working. We have several mainstream media news coverage of him. And I think it's a way for him to get his uh, more pla more of a platform for his uh, message. Uh, and maybe the right thing to do is to try and downplay the attention he's getting and give him less. All right. So we never mentioned him. I don't even know who you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> no, we can mention him. The people we're talking to uh, are the people who are deep in this. They know this. I don't care about the people we're talking about. I've completely uh, forgotten the topic, actually. So who is we should move on. What's a Kennedy? I've never heard that name before. <laughs> Just kidding. I went to Kennedy High School. So so did I. Wow. Shut up. Were no, we in high true. school together? Were we? <laughs> I was in Ben Goyon High School. Uh, now, wait, though. Did you play Duck Duck Gray Duck at your school or did you play Duck Duck Goose at your school? Because I played be the, the correct game. There. Duck, duck, so you duck. played duck, duck, goose. Okay, no, I guess we did. That's not a real game. Play. Americans play game with ducks. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. What and a goose. No, and no gooses. Yes. Just different colored ducks. Don't listen. Nathan doesn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Dorit. Where, Thanks for uh, having me. Where can people find you in the morass that has become Twitter since Elon Musk took over? I'm still on Twitter. My handle is Dorit M.I. on Twitter. I think I'm still verified for some reason, but I'm not sure why I haven't paid and they were supposed to uh, stop having this. But for now, I appear verified. And in email, uh, my work email is really... No, don't give your email. Don't do it. I find it all the time. So I'm sure anyone who wants to can find it. Yeah. Use Google if you really want to email her. Don't just Twitter her. That's Twitter at her. All right. Thank you so much. We will... Thank you. All right. Thanks, and, and thank you for joining us and for sticking with us. It's always great to have you, dear loyal listeners. I really want to encourage everybody to 
not be shy about taking a stand against misinformation and be on the lookout for that litigious misinformation when it comes along too. It, it might seem like law, but it's really science misinformation in disguise. And with that, my name is Karen Ernst. I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. Also, don't forget to take our new online free course, The Vaccine Quest. You can find that under the resources tab at voicesforvaccines.org. I've done it. I got my certificate, so you can do it too. <laughs> and I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstrom, a general pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital and chair of our state uh, immunization coalition, Iowa Immunizes, where you can go to iowaimmunizes.org. One of the best immunization coolishes in the world. The best. All right. Take care. Podcast Bye. out.